From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. Hi, my name is Megan Jordan, and I am a PhD student of sociology at Vanderbilt University. Welcome to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, which we are filming in the Grand Reading Room of the Nashville Public Library on the ancestral lands of the Cherokee, Shawnee, and other Native peoples. Today I'm joined by my colleagues. Um, would you all introduce yourselves? Um, I'm Kelly Swope. I'm a PhD student in philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I'm also a graduate organizer with Vanderbilt Graduate Workers United. Uh, we're a group that's forming a labor union for graduate students at Vanderbilt. Hi everyone, my name is Misha Ennis Thompson. I'm a PhD candidate in Community Research and Action at Vanderbilt University. Hello, my name is May Hartness and I'm a senior at Lipscomb University. I'm studying law, justice, and society and urban studies. Awesome, so today we're discussing chapter one of Dr. Kendi's book on definitions from an academic community lens. Um, our first question will go to Misha. Um, so being a social scientist, uh, why do you think Kendi dedicated an entire chapter just to definitions? Yeah, thank you for that question, Megan. I think um, what's really key for me as a social scientist who does work both in like sociology and psychology is to really think about what are, what are the ways in which we're operationalizing or in other words, understanding the terms that we are, that we're discussing. And so Kendi notes in the, in the first chapter that definitions anchor us. So they provide sort of like a starting, a starting place. What I think is really useful is that that starting place that Kendi offers can then allow for further discussion around, are there ways in which we can complicate and critique this perspective? Are there things that work really well about it? Um, and also to sort of get a, get a sort of sense of what, whose work is Kendi drawing on to inform his own sense of definition or operationalization of racism and anti-racism in the context of his book. Awesome, thank you for that very thorough answer. Um, so yeah, um, the importance of definitions is so we all know that we're talking about the same things and um, all on the same page getting there. Um, awesome, okay, so our next question is more so on definitions of racism and anti-racism, um, which is what Kendi spends about half the chapter teasing out. Um, so this question is, uh, Kendi provides us the difference between a racist and an anti-racist, stating a racist is someone who supports racist policy by their action or inaction, or expressing a racist idea. An anti-racist is someone who supports an anti-racist policy by their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. So what do you all think about these definitions? Um, and maybe we could start with Kelly for this one. Sure. Um, so what I, what I think is good about that definition is um, it brings in the word policy. Um, so it um, construes racism as, you know, not just an interpersonal dynamic that has negative, you know, social consequences in an informal sense, but it's also embedded in institutions that we work together to build. And taking that, that bigger view, I think, allows us to see it as more a part of the texture of everyday life. Um, so I think that's one good aspect of it. Um, I might additionally add the word practices uh, to that definition as well, because I think 
it's also important to consider, you know, all of the kind of customs and informal practices that reinforce, um, you know, racist policies and and institutions. And uh, one thing that that Kendi really brings out in framing the definition that way is that um, the stakes are very high. It's not just um, you know negative, adverse psychological or social interactions that racism causes. It's uh, the, you know the stakes are. Um, are people's lives and racist institutions uh, can imperil people's lives. And he talks he talks in the chapter about um, you know different life expectancies comparatively among racial groups, and that's a really uh, important part of this discussion. So. Awesome, thank you for that. Um, would anyone like to add um, their initial thoughts on the definitions? Yeah, Kelly, I really love that phrase that you use that texture of everyday life mentality. Um, because when I was reading Kendi's work, it helped me to see that he thinks of racist and anti-racist behavior not as this permanent tattoo that's on you forever and is lasting, but rather as more of a disposable name tag. And it's something that, dependent upon the way that you're thinking, speaking, or acting in a given situation, that is the name tag that you wear. And as someone who recognizes her former ignorance, it helps the act of becoming more anti-racist, um, less intimidating to me, because I know that even if I was wrong yesterday, I still have the capacity to learn today and to be better today. And that's really encouraging to me. And I have the capacity to move that texture of everyday life and become something better. Yeah, thank you both for that perspective. I think what I would also add on to that is bringing into the space um, a scholar uh, named Dr. Dorothy Roberts, who talks about race being a political system. So I think to your point, Kelly, about like practices, policies, ideologies. So uh, Dr. Roberts notes that race is a political system such that it's a relationship among people that has to do with how they are governed. Um, and she then goes on to say that if race is a political system, then we have to use political means to end its harmful impact on our society. And so I think for me, what this all boils down to is that racism and anti-racism are about the ideologies in which we embody. And what I'm really struck by um, when I think about these definitions is I think of the ideologies of white supremacy that have largely reigned supreme since the since the founding of this country and how those discussions around white supremacy have largely been absent. Um, and I think that's really critical because even as we think about um, how, we, how race, racial categories have been constructed in this country, um, they've been constructed in service of or in order to uh, really perpetuate these white supremacist ideologies. And so I would have loved to see more of an, or, an emphasis um, of these ideal, ideological perspectives and how they have been, as you mentioned, Kelly, like infused into the everyday textures of, um, of the US context. Awesome, thank you all for all of that. Um, you've, you've definitely teased out these definitions. Um, so just to go a step further, so um, Kendi talks about the difference between a, um, someone who's not racist um, and an anti-racist. What, is, what does that distinction mean to you? Not racist versus anti-racist? For me, I think about Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, and other conversations about race. 
And she has this really beautiful metaphor, which has helped me a lot. Um, and it's the moving sidewalk or walkway in an airport, this conveyor belt. And it's the idea that the conveyor belt is always moving in the direction towards white supremacy and towards racism. And there are people who are walking along with the conveyor belt who are actively engaging in racist behaviors. But then there are the people who say, no, I refuse to walk in that direction. I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna go in the exact opposite direction at a speed that's greater than the conveyor belt itself. And those are the people who are engaging anti-racist behavior. And then there are the people who claim this neutrality or passivity and they say, I'm not walking in either direction, but they're still being moved in the direction of white supremacy and racism. And so I think that that kind of teases out this definition more and says that there's never, even if you're not aware of it, you're always making a decision. I'm always making a decision regardless of if I'm aware of it or not. And often if my consciousness isn't at play, it's more likely than not going to be a racist decision. Thank you for that visualization that you just provided. I, I really like that. Um, and it helps us understand the importance of action and, and inaction in this, these definitions of racism and how, how does it get perpetuated. Um, would either of you like to add to, um, yeah. Yeah, um, so I really love, May, that you brought in uh, the work of Dr. Beverly Daniels Tatum. Um, because actually, like, as I was preparing for this discussion, I was sort of looking through or perusing through the works that have been really foundational to my understanding of racism and anti-racism. Um, and so that imagery has been really poignant and hopefully will be really useful for folks who are watching. Um, I think I would add to that that anti-racism, I'm reminded uh, by a about a conversation that I had a few weeks ago where one of my colleagues said that anti-racism calls for a reckoning and an undoing. And so I think to your point about like intentionally moving faster than and in the opposite speed of this conveyor belt that is perpetuating white supremacist ideologies and racist policies, practices, um, I think it's really critical to mention like this undoing, like it's an intentional undoing, it's an intentional reckoning. There's a call for a justice that's inherent in anti-racism um, if it's a label that you're hoping to embody. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I guess I would just um, like to take up the point too about the, well, Kendi makes this comment in the chapter actually that um, this idea that we can be neutral on these questions is one of the obstacles to um, building a genuinely anti-racist um, political culture. Um, because it, to, to, to take a neutral perspective means denying just all of the obvious material <laughs> effects, not to mention the ideological things that you were, you know, you were mentioning earlier, Misha. Um, you know, there's, there's disparate distribution of wealth and opportunity. Um, our schools are segregated along racial lines oftentimes, so to, to take a neutral stance on these questions is to not see a lot of the reality that we're immersed in. And so I think that's a, that's a, key, a key starting point is for, for an anti-racist perspective is just acknowledging that racial categories um, are one way in which we produce and reproduce our, our society, and we have to um, analyze that and, and address that, yeah. Well, awesome. Um, so that was great. I, I like how all of you 
um, talked about structure and how we all take part in this system. Um, and so let's move on to the next question. Um, in the beginning of the chapter, Kendi talks about his parents' experience of joining the Black Power Movement in 1970. He states that once they knew the definitions they were fighting for, they were more grounded in their principles and began to show up differently in their spaces. He says his father began organizing programs where he asked provocative questions at his church, and his mother joined justice-oriented student groups at her college and even changed her career pursuits. How have, you how have the experiences of 2020 witnessing the Black Lives Matter movement and the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 changed you? I'm struck by that question and all of its weight. Um, I think personally this year has brought me into spaces mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that I would have nev never otherwise have gone. And it has had me confronting my privilege in new ways, and it has humbled me. And it has also encouraged me because I've been brought into groups such as this one, where people are willing to forgive me of my past mistakes and say, let's learn together. And I think that's something that's been really beautiful and has been a theme of this year, is we have this new sense of confronting what's been wrong, but also saying, yes, that's in the past and we must confront it and we must talk about it, but we also must move forward. We must press on and go forward into something that's so much better. And so as hard as this year has been, um, I think that that has been a significant blessing to come of it as well. Thank you for that question. Um, thank you for your visionary answer. <laughs> I, like, I like the future pursuit um, theme to that. Yeah, that's actually reminding me, um, when I first was thinking about this question, I thought similarly, May, about like, what are the ways in which this period of time has been really propelling my, my own ideologies and perspectives? And I think over the last, um, over the last few months, um, I've really had an opportunity to engage in more visionary work that sort of started with self-reflection. And so I want to bring into this space uh, the perspective of um, a black queer scholar um, and activist, Adrienne Marie Brown, who describes a vision as the furthest we can go. It's stretching the imagination muscle, like um, envisioning what's possible and then using our collect collective efforts to actually make that happen. Um, and so for me, I think this period of time has been one in which I've thought like, how do I shift this, this pessimism that I've largely held for such a long time around not feeling like things are possible to recognizing that there is an abundance of possibility. Um, and so I'm reminded of these moments in which I've been able to be in community um, similar to what you mentioned, May, um, I think of a lot of like how Zoom has propelled my ability to be in conversation with folks who are concerned around, um, in particular, black liberation and abolition of the prison industrial complex. So like having had the opportunity to be in conversation over a period of weeks um, with uh, black folks in the UK, where we had like bi-weekly Zoom discussions around what does a black abolitionist future look like? What are the futures that we are working for in a US context, in a UK context? And I think the 
realizing the power of technology, even as it has had its many downfalls, realizing its power has been really helpful, engaging in that self-reflection of what is the vision that I see and how can I um, join with others to engage in organizing um, and sort of brainstorming this, this vision for the future. Yeah, I, I echo um, both of those comments and specifically in terms of how much I've seen people trying to imagine new possibilities together. I really agree with that point and that speaks to my own experience just in some of the labor organizing contexts that I've worked this year. Um, and I guess I would add another observation that I think the convergence of the pandemic and the BLM movement this summer has, I think, just produced a, a more collectively intelligent analysis of our society. You know, I just think that we have turned a corner this year in terms of, um, you know, public opinion about certain issues, um, you know, like policing and, and prison abolition are ideas that are being discussed in an open forum in ways that I haven't seen in my, uh, in my lifetime. And those, that's really significant. And I think the, the pandemic specifically in connection to some of those institutions, like in connection to prisons, we've seen, you know, that's been a site of, um, you know, a lot of prisons have been hot spots for the pandemic and people understand better now, I think, how those institutions are functioning and the kind of role that they're playing. And we know that um, there's um, a lot of racial inequality um, disproportionately, uh, you know, people of color disproportionately represented in our prisons and being disproportionately exposed to the virus as a result of, of that. So I think um, people are seeing issues with greater clarity as a result of the convergence of, you know, a social movement in a, a natural um, catastrophe, I guess. Uh, so it's, um, it's definitely been a big year <laughs> for, for learning, uh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, thank you for all of your awesome points. I, I loved all the themes you touched on, um, ranging from the importance of space and being in new spaces and also the importance of learning and finding community and um, connecting these issues and seeing how we're in this sort of ecosystem of just everything interacts with each other, um, you know? So um, let's move on to another question on definitions. Um, so today in the fight against racism, equity has replaced the word equality. What is racial inequity and why is the shift to racial equity important? The way that Kendi describes racial inequity, he says that when two races aren't standing on um, unequal footing, or when two races aren't, aren't standing on unequal footing, um, they don't have that same foundation. And something that Lipscomb does when you first enter the Law, Justice, and Society Department, they put this image in front of your face and make you contemplate it. And you see in the image, there's like a baseball game going on, and there are people at the baseball game, and then there's a fence and then there are three people standing behind the fence. And there's one person who's pretty tall, there's one person of medium height, and there's one person who's shorter. And they say that equality would be to give every person the same size box to stand on so that they could see over the fence. And then they make the shift and say, everyone gets a different size box depending upon their need. And that's what equity is. And so the taller person gets 
not so big of a box, and so on. But then something that I think is interesting that this graphic does is that they move the conversation from equality to equity and then to what they say is liberation. And liberation is removing the fence in its entirety, so no one needs a box in the first place. And Lipscomb can't claim that graphic, but they got it from somewhere, and it's been extremely helpful to me. And while I love that our conversation is moving more from equality to equity, I think it would be really amazing to see that shift from equity to complete liberation. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that'll be in our lifetime, but I think that would be a really incredible thing to have our consciousness so tuned to where anti-racism is the rule and not the exception. Thank you for taking us there. I, yeah, I loved, loved how you took us straight to liberation. Um, and it's, it's a creative and very radical thought that needs to be talked about more. Um, so thank you for that. Um, would anyone like to add? Um, just something about the concept of equity. Um, when I teach uh, Aristotle to my intro to philosophy classes at Vanderbilt, um, we read a, um, a text on ethics where he talks about the concept of equity. And he talks about it as um, finding justice for people uh, who are left out of the law's consideration, right? So you have some, some particular consideration that um, the universal legislation that we've designed to address these kinds of questions doesn't, doesn't cover it, or it leaves out your, your consideration. And that's, um, that's how Aristotle defines the, um, the case of equity. I think that's a really useful way of um, distinguishing it from something like formal legal equality, because the law is supposed to cover all of us in, in the same way, and we're technically equal before the law, but we know um, in all kinds of ways in which that doesn't play out in practice. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how I think about the concept of equity um, from a philosophy teacher's perspective. Yeah, yeah um, I think I would, I, I love the points that you two have made so far. I think the only thing I would add there is again, thinking about the ways in which the law has been infiltrated and sh so deeply shaped by white supremacist ideologies. And what I think, I, what I think is really helpful about this idea of um, liberation, like what, what does it look like to actually deconstruct white, white supremacy and how it shows up in everyday policies, practices, interpersonal interactions. Um, and I think that's like part of the work of, of envisioning a new, like what would it look like to do things like defund police, op, police or to engage in prison abolition. Like these are like radical possibilities that I, that I think oftentimes uh, before the pandemic, we were told these things are not possible. And yet, I don't know about you all, but I think that I've been seeing like the things that we were told are not possible, folks are moving on them. Um, so I don't know, just sort of like uh, this idea of like the imagination muscle, I feel like is just so important of like, how do we get to a place of equity to, of liberation? So I'm gonna ask one final question. Um, Thank you so much for the answers you provide thus, thus far. Um, so, Kendi, uh, this is more of an action-based question um, so of how, how can we apply this concept of anti-racism. Kendi defines racism as a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to racial inequity and are substantiated by racist ideas. In the U.S., racist policies and racist histories can be found in our governments as well as our workplaces. For example, 
Vanderbilt was allegedly an, an initial investor in CoreCivic, the second largest private prison company in the US, and regards the co-founder of CoreCivic as a distinguished alumnus. Likewise, Vanderbilt is one of the remaining prestigious universities in the US that still invests in fossil fuels. Belmont University is also guilty of having their, the current CEO of CoreCivic sit on their board of trustees. Both the prison industry and the fossil fuel industry are known to disproportionately harm and shorten the lives of communities of color and poor people. There are student groups such as Divest BU and Be Better Belmont mobilizing to call Vandy and Belmont to reconcile its, their past and present in investing in racist institutions. Knowing what we know about how racism is propped up by action and inaction across institutions, going forward, what are ways we can show up as anti-racist in our current academic spaces or future workplaces? So I can start commenting on that. Um, since I work at Vanderbilt, um, I think it's great what the Divest VU organizers have been doing and prioritizing you know, the divestment of, university, of the university's wealth from fossil fuels. And um, I think that's a worthwhile undertaking and Vanderbilt should be pushed to, to do that. Um, but I think we can push them even further than that, <laughs> actually, because um, whenever you have an institution of that size and influence with billions of dollars flowing through it, they have other investments too, um, in private equity firms that themselves are heavily invested in fossil fuels and you know, private prison. And so there's, there's an interconnectedness to all of these um, financial priorities that these large wealthy institutions have. And you know, it's not as if Vanderbilt's unique in that, but I think that um, you know, we, need to, we need to try to influence um, the places that we are. So I think, that, I think that they can be pushed further. And I think it's important to um, see the university as not disconnected from our society, but fully integrated with the same patterns that we've been discussing, right? So it's part of a system, a capitalistic system in which there are racial inequalities and it's part of the, the production and reproduction of those tendencies in our society. And so we need to keep organizing for racial justice and economic justice and the livelihood of all of the people who work, you know, who work at the institution, uh, even while we push them on these, um, on these divestment campaigns and things like that. Yeah, I would add um, to your points, Kelly, the, um, there's a quote by Dr. Angela Davis that I really appreciate that talks about how we are all always complicit. And so our role as folks who are engaging or who are hoping to engage in change in academic spaces or whatever systems that we are inhabiting is to find ways to subvert that systems, whether that looks like the redistribution of the, resource, the economic resources that we have access to, um, whether it's pushing for, for example, um, equitable pay for folks, whether we're talking about graduate students or workers in the cafeteria or throughout the range of the university, because even there, there's a microcosm of that inequity that's happening writ large. So I really love that idea of like, we have to, we can, and we have to ask and demand for more because it's possible. Um, so thank you for that point. Yeah, I so appreciate the points that you two have already made. And I, I love this idea of looking at our classrooms as our platforms and doing research into the institutions where we are. Um, Lipscomb has some problems. <laughs> That's a really true fact and a lot of people know that. Um, and I think diving into the history of our institutions and calling for change within that, um, that's something that we should all strive to do, especially as students and teachers. We're claiming that this 
place is a place of education, and so let's prove it in how we act. Awesome. Thank you all for your, for your comments. Uh, it's been a joy listening to you. Um, so um, thank you so much for tuning in to our conversation today. For more information and more episodes, uh, please visit www.justconversations.org. Um, the next episode will be a continuation of chapter one on definitions from a different academic community. We hope to see you there. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Farisee. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate. 